You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. All right, today I am joined by Dr. Molly McCarthy. Molly is an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, Division of Occupational Therapy Education, where she teaches three evidence-based practice courses. Her scholarly activity includes access to health services, social and structural determinants of health, and research methods and methodology. Additionally, Molly, you are a scientific reviewer for the AOTA Annual Conference, the OTE Education Summit, and the American Public Health Association, APHA, Annual Conference. We're happy to have an evidence-based practice and all-around research expert on everyday evidence today. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's our pleasure. And Molly, you have a background in, in public health, health promotion, and community health. What motivates you to contribute to scientific evidence related to occupational therapy specifically? Well, thanks for having me, Matt. I love the podcast and I appreciate that AOTA is you know, doing this work to connect scholarship with practitioners and researchers to improve everyday clinical practice. This is a valuable endeavor. So thank you so much for your efforts, for hosting this amazing podcast and for inviting me onto the show. And I would say that my um, motivation uh, comes from four main places. Um, First, my graduate training in public health and my undergraduate training in sociology and anthropology gave me kind of a lens for viewing the world with attention towards ways in which the social and environmental contexts are structured to the advantage of some and to the disadvantage of others. So one part is that I, I have this training and I feel this moral obligation to attend to those perspectives in my work. And, you know, related to that is this idea that people with disabilities comprise a marginalized group in society. And so that kind of fits with this values-based orientation to the world that I have. And secondly, I see the ways in which OT has this tangible impact in people's lives as far as participation in everyday activities. And so I see OT as important and practical in that sense. And third is that OT dovetails with public health and with disability studies fields. So since OT is a holistic profession, the practice framework can be used to think about, you know, day-to-day activities, ADLs, IADLs, but also these broader social issues like social inclusion and empowerment um, and population health topics. You know, in other words, Barriers to participation are not always individual problems requiring individual solutions. And I think OT, as kind of the most holistic of the direct care professions, has an opportunity, you know, to incorporate these perspectives. And and to a limited extent, it does, but I think it could do that more. And, And so that's really exciting to me about the field of OT. And finally, I have... (laughs) <laughs> you know, to make a, a long answer to a short question, um, I, I also have an invisible disability myself. So I have this like direct lived experience in the way that a health problem can Im- impact a person's day-to-day life. And so I care deeply about 
people with disabilities as a marginalized population in society deserving of better social and environmental conditions for health and for life more generally and civic participation in work and in all of these domains. And so those are kind of the main, I guess, motivating factors. And then in addition to that, I, I love research. I love statistics. I like teaching. And so here I am. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your motivations. It's really wonderful and inspiring to me to hear how you've used your um, expertise and your knowledge uh, to really contribute to research um, and, and make a greater impact and collaborate with other people as well. So I think that's awesome. Um, wh- what would you say is your perspective on the value that OT practitioners can bring to community and public health? I know you touched on this a little bit with how holistic OT is, but is there anything you'd like to add? Oh, yeah, definitely. I love this question. I think there's so much room for public health professionals and OTs to work together to address the needs of groups and populations. So public health addresses primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention strategies. So they think about you know preventing illness, injury, disability, um, detecting it early, and reducing symptoms or severity. So that's kind of like the prevention spectrum. And OTs already do a lot of work at the individual level, and they're kind of growing, especially with the new practice framework, in the direction of working with groups and populations. So working with public health, who, I mean, which has uh, kind of evolved, I guess, to meet this population health need, I mean, that's an obvious fit. Um, And I would say that what OT brings is that many public health practitioners don't have a strong background in like the specific conditions or the specific limitations that might affect people. So, you know, OT can bring this to an interdisciplinary team. And they also bring their perspective of, you know, life participation, ADLs, IADLs, roles and routines and context and environment, like basically all of these domains from the practice framework. These are applicable at a population health level and frequently public health practitioners You know, this is sort of an intuitive um, way to think about the world. And and I think of it as like, if OTs are speaking Spanish and public health professionals are speaking Italian, you know, they might be able to like understand each other to a great extent, even though the languages are different, there's enough overlap that they dovetail well and they can probably use really understanding each other, and they bring differing but complementary perspectives, you know, to the table. I I especially think that, you know, whereas OTs might bring these perspectives that I mentioned, you know, directly from the practice framework, public health professionals also can add, you know, their experience designing and implementing group and population level interventions. So I think there's room for, you know, for example, OTs who who care about this topic to learn from public health professionals and vice versa. So I think it's very complimentary. Absolutely. That's a, a wonderful metaphor. I love that. And it really highlights the importance of, of trying to make these um, interdisciplinary connections uh, in order to achieve greater outcomes for the people that we work with and, and most want to help. Um, so thank you so much for offering that perspective. When I was uh, doing my background research on you, Molly, uh, I, I saw that you currently have three publications in press, which I thought was impressive already. Um, today, we're just going to be talking about one of them. 
uh, using critically appraised papers or caps in an OT curriculum, Ideas for Teaching and Practice. So this is soon to be published and released in OT practice. Um, So all of our listeners, be on the lookout and refer to the article for more information. Um, But let's go ahead and dive in and talk about that. What makes implementing evidence-based practice so difficult to do? And how do you hope this article can help practitioners? So I think, um, you know, many listeners will probably relate to some barriers to implementing EBP, probably most notably would be not having enough time to, you know, search literature databases or read the articles, maybe not even having access to literature databases, or maybe they have access to the abstracts, but not the full text articles. And, you know, even if those barriers are not at play, so even for somebody who works, for example, for like a large university affiliated clinic, um, another barrier can just be, say, difficulty understanding evidence, difficulty appraising it and applying it to clinical practice. And um, I mentioned earlier the time commitment of, uh, you know, if you've got high productivity standards, then it's going to be hard to get all of your documentation done and do all of your normal sort of day-to-day activities. And on top of that, also do this literature searching to support EBP. And so um, when people do search published literature to inform their implementation or their their, um, intervention implementation, I think a lot of us might just be tempted to read the abstract and just jump right to the conclusions without reading the methods or the results or to understand, you know, more broadly the study's strengths and limitations how were the outcome variables measured? When were they measured? How were they reported? You know, these types of issues. And and it's it can be hard, I think, to to feel like that's a good use of your time if you're not fully reading the article, if you don't have a great understanding of it. It might be easier to just, you know, ask a colleague, um, ask a mentor, um, ask other OTs on social media. I mean, these might be more efficient ways to communicate about potential interventions that you could try. And particularly if a clinician doesn't have a great deal of self-efficacy around understanding the content of the article. Um, And so I guess that's the background that, you know, or sort of like the context that I see (laughs) this paper entering um, where a lot of clinicians might feel this way. And so, um, you know, with that in mind, I, started teaching CAPS a few years ago in a research methods class. So every week as we go along and, you know, go through certain content in class, like for example, you know, the studies parameters, inclusion and exclusion criteria, then we'll address that section of the class, or or excuse me, that section of the CAP. So the CAP kind of goes along throughout the semester and at the end they, they write the Uh, clinical bottom line. So I started teaching this a few years ago, and and my motivation was to sort of help students think through these kind of conceptual issues as we're talking about them in class, and in a way that is sort of relatable, because it's an article that they can choose, and it is something that they could present at conference if they wanted to submit it. And I guess to your question, how can it help practitioners? For practitioners who may be feel this tension that I am describing. Um, This article might be a good resource for tips about how to write the cap, 
as well as some, you know, skills for understanding and appraising the evidence more generally. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I love that sentiment. I think most, hopefully all practitioners would agree that evidence-based practice is so important. Um, but you're so right. Sometimes there just is not enough time. Um, so thank you for working on this article and, and being here to, to share how people can use CAPS um, to facilitate uh, their own evidence-based practice. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Um, I'm going to um, poach a question now from, from your article. Uh, this is actually one of the headings um, in this article. And what is a CAP and what technical skills does it address? So I see CAPS as addressing a wide range of scholarship-related technical skills. So the first is obviously searching the literature database to identify potentially relevant articles. And so you have to do a lit search to find the articles. You have to find ones that were published in the last 10 years and that are about a topic that's relevant for OT practice. So the first is literature searching skills. The second is um, kind of understanding study designs. So for a CAP, the papers have to describe a one-group pre-post study or a two-group pre-post study with or without random allocation into groups. Um, and so an author would need to be able to identify, you know, which study design does this paper describe and does it fit into the framework of the CAP. And then once the author has picked out a paper, then they need to summarize this, you know, the content of the article. And so the, there's a lot of like understanding research and evaluating research skills <laughs> under that umbrella. So they need to summarize the study groups, the intervention and the control conditions. They need to describe the instrumentation and the psychometric properties of the instruments. They need to analyze the findings the statistical approaches in the paper, power analysis, if relevant, um, they need to consider potential biases of the study, and they need to relate the findings to OT in light of the study's strengths and limitations. So it's, you know, obviously a wide range of skills that an author would need. Um, did I fully address your question? What technical <laughs> skills does it address? Yeah, I guess writing would be the other skill. You know, you have to be able to summarize this um, kind of coherently and intelligibly and, you know, in a way that is honest in, in so far as like representing what the paper found, but without using the paper's words verbatim. So there's also like a, a writing skill that's in there related to, you know, summarizing and paraphrasing without using the text verbatim. Absolutely. That's, that, that's a long list of skills. Um, to, to author a cap. Um, it doesn't sound like a, a light undertaking. Um, 
and I think we're going to touch on this later, but this might be a good spot for this question. How would you recommend um, a practitioner or student um, or educator, anyone really, uh, develop these types of technical skills? I would say just start with practicing. Um, so, I mean, I guess they might want to think about, like, do they just want to practice doing caps? If so, um, start there. But if there's a, a different skill, like specifically about searching literature databases, you know, you could use online resources for developing PICO questions or PIO questions to conduct a literature search. Um, if they want to practice, you know, the kind of analysis of the paper, then I would use the um, the text by Leslie Portney, her 2020 book entitled Foundations of Clinical Research, Application to Evidence-Based Practice, has an entire chapter devoted to aspects of design validity, which is kind of like a four-tier approach to evaluating uh, a study. And, and it has, yeah, these, four, these kind of four sections, statistical conclusion validity. So that part kind of prompts you to evaluate whether the statistics are appropriate in light of the study, you know, design, the, the sample size, um, uh, like the level of measurement, those types of questions. Um, it prompts the uh, reader to think about internal validity, um, construct validity, and external validity or generalizability. And so, you know, these each have several sub bullet points to kind of guide a reader through evaluating an article. And I don't know that it was necessarily designed for this purpose, but it works really well. <laughs> I think this is a really helpful um, framework, the framework of design validity. I think it's chapter 16 of Courtney's 2020 book, but I could be mistaken about that. But anyways, it's, it's a super great um, resource. And then um, I guess if the person wants to practice their writing skills, um, there are lots of ways to practice that. You could, um, you know, you could start by writing a cap and you could ask other people for feedback. You could join writing groups or even other types like non-technical writing, maybe creative writing groups could be a useful way to sort of develop your writing skills in a way that's, you know, maybe uh, appealing to other aspects of your life beyond um, your sort of day-to-day -day clinical practice. Absolutely. Thank you so much for those uh, recommendations for our listeners, all of our EB people out there um, for some great ways and resources to, to up their clinical technical research skills. Um, so CAPS, as you mentioned, can be submitted um, as poster presentations for the annual AOTA conference. Um, they are no longer published on the AOTA website, which might be new um, to some listeners. Um, how would you say they work as a tool or an approach that can be used to improve um, practice and knowledge of a certain topic? Um, so since CAPS require an author to summarize the study, to analyze it, and to explicate what the main findings mean for day-to-day -day clinical practice, I think, you know, that is how it is a tool. Um, it's kind of, you know, they're presented at conferences and uh, listeners can then take that information and implement it into their daily practice. Or um, 
you know, I mentioned that OTs frequently use social media to communicate about um, intervention ideas and things like that. So it's also, you know, just kind of a way to get it into the discourse. If you're if you're doing this in-depth analysis, then listeners to the poster presentation are going to know to recommend that for um, for their friends and for their colleagues. So I guess that's how I see that working as a tool or as an approach. Um, and in particular, I think the bottom line for OT section is probably the section that's hardest to write, but which is the arguably the most useful for readers or for listeners. Awesome. Thank you. I, I love that piece, that idea of uh, using CAPS to, to disseminate um, best practice um, and doing so on social media or um, other mediums like that. I think CAPS are wonderful um, for, for com completing that or, or accomplishing that, that objective. Um, and your whole entire evidence perk is unique and, and pretty fascinating to me um, because not only do you address how to author good CAPS, um, but you do address how students, educators, and practitioners can use the CAP framework to learn or improve the way they summarize and interpret research. What would you say are some common situations or reasons for someone to write a CAP or to follow the CAP framework? So reasons for writing a CAP or just using the CAP framework generally would be, you know, if, if a clinician is interested in using EBP, if they need to um, kind of have that framework to help them think through the different aspects of the paper, then that would be a helpful exercise. I also think it's generally like a great way to get to go to conference without, you know, say you're a clinician, but you don't analyze data in your kind of like day-to-day -day clinical work. If there's not infrastructure to support clinical research, then it's a way that you could still participate in the conference um, and you could still go and you could network with other clinicians and you could disseminate information that you think is relevant. And it doesn't require research infrastructure on the part of the institution that you work for or, um, you know, on your free time. I mean, because most I think most clinicians probably would have to do that as part of their free time. This would be like a great way to get to present at conference or alternatively, if you're interested in hosting or attending a journal club, it might be um, a nice way of thinking through an article. And, and this could be, you know, using a, a cap that has been published in the past or, and reading it concurrently with the journal article, or it could be an article that you find that you're interested in that you then write a cap about to support the journal club. Um, alternatively, an OT educator might use it as an assignment for class, or if you just are interested in research, it's, I would just say generally, it's a helpful framework. Absolutely. I love the more I'm learning about CAPS in this conversation with you, the more I'm seeing it as a, a way to make clinical research and, and conference and dissemination of research more accessible um, to clinicians, um, practitioners, and really people all over. So it does sound like such a wonderful tool. Um, and in your article as well, Molly, you identify common mistakes, conceptual issues, and resources for practitioners. We encourage everyone to look at the article for the exhaustive list, but I do want to ask you now, what are some of the key points you think people should keep in mind when choosing an article for their CAP and engaging in the CAP process? So 
As far as choosing the article, it's helpful to be mindful that the topic is something that an OT would actually use in practice. And that might seem kind of self-evident, but I think it <laughs> warrants uh, a mention that if it's not a topic about which an OT would be able to engage, then it probably wouldn't make sense as a cap. Um, another consideration is the time frame. It should be published in the last 10 years. And the design, like I mentioned earlier, should um, fit into one of the three groups or one of the three categories, a, a one group pre-post design or a two group pre-post design with or without random allocation. So in other words, it needs to be a quasi-experimental design with one group or two groups, or it should be a randomized control trial. So that excludes meta-analyses and systematic reviews. And it also excludes things like cohort designs or case control designs, case series or case studies. Those are all excluded. Some of the questions of the cap won't be relevant if you if you use any of those designs. So that's why I mentioned it. Absolutely. And for some of our practitioners maybe who uh, have been out of the, the research lingo for a little bit, um, how, how do you go about learning about, you know, a quasi-experimental design, meta-analysis? How can someone look at an article and determine if it's appropriate or not? Well, you know, that's a great point. I'm so glad you mentioned that. AOTA has a resource for this. They have a great summary of all the different study designs. So um, I, it's like a one pager or maybe like one page back in uh, front and back, I mean. And uh, I, a student might have written it. But anyways, it's part of the AOTA EBP resources about study designs. So that's a resource I would consider um, if, if a listener was kind of thinking through the designs and maybe not fully remembering the details of each one. Um, and then some other sort of recommendations would be, um, you know, if you don't have access to literature databases, but you know of an article, you might either check a, un a public university library, or you could email the authors directly. Um, yeah, those would be my recommendations. Those are wonderful recommendations. Thank you, Molly. Um, what would you say are some um, important considerations to make when developing the clinical bottom line or clinical recommendation section of the CAP? Um, I know you've mentioned already this is the most important, but also can be the most difficult part. Yeah, absolutely. I really do think it is um, the hardest part for authors because it's um, kind of like a broad brushstroke of the things that are discussed in greater detail later in the CAP worksheet. But I would, um, I would start by, first of all, waiting until you're done with the rest of the CAP to, to write the, uh, the cl clinical bottom line. And I would do that because it's easier to analyze the article in great detail and then summarize it uh, at kind of, you know, 10,000 feet rather than vice versa, or, or at least that's the way that, that I would approach it if I were writing one. Um, and I guess more specifically, so that's when I would do it, but then more specifically what I would do is um, I would start by summarizing very briefly in two to three sentences a lot of the sort of basic info about the study. So the design, the population, the intervention, 
the time frame, the main findings and main limitations. And that seems like so much to squeeze into a really brief two to three sentence, sentence passage, but this is useful because it orients the reader to the overall study. And in fact, I would envision a template that would read something like, this study examined X intervention compared to Y control condition over Z timeframe using a blah, blah, blah design among patients who blah, blah, blah. And then go on to say, this study found that, and then put the, re- the main results there, and then add the study's main limitations are blah, blah, blah. And so that's three sentences with like a broad, you know, picture look at the overall study, you know, that hits all kind of the high points that will help a reader interpret the rest of the content of this section, which I would say should address how an OT would integrate that information into direct client care. So in other words, for whom are these findings relevant and what would an OT do with that information? Then address, um, does the study say how this intervention can be adapted or could it be used you know, in other settings? If it's mentioned in the article, that's helpful for readers who may you know, work across diverse settings. And then include also who would benefit from this information. And I always like to think really broadly about who needs to know this. So I, I kind of would brainstorm about would it be useful for other health professionals, for referring providers, for students from OT or from other disciplines? What about other OT clinicians? Uh, would it be useful for community-based organizations? And what about clients? What about caregivers? So who would benefit Uh, from that information, you know, thinking broadly and perhaps using, you know, kind of like a knowledge translation framework to to think through uh, that issue. But um, I guess for the purpose of the passage, I would keep that, you know, in one, maybe two sentences, but probably one sentence. And then finally address what is still unknown and what would be helpful to understand uh, and, you know, related recommendations for future research. So that is kind of like a template that I would use if I were developing this section. Thank you so much. Those are, it, it sounds like a wonderful template. And uh, I, I remember learning about CAPS and, and how to do them while in school. And it was so helpful for learning about evidence-based practice, learning how to consume evidence. Um, but I also feel like it's so helpful to boost clinical reasoning um, and develop clinical reasoning. Uh, and so Again, just th- I can't thank you enough for these recommendations. I think it's so helpful for practitioners, students, everybody, um, but also is great to disseminate research as well. And how would you recommend practitioners, students, and educators approach reading the CAPS that other people have completed and potentially applying the findings and recommendations to their own practice? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, a curious reader could absolutely read the CAP and see how it relates to clinical practice guidelines as relevant, um, and they could consider implementing that strategy based on the study findings and in light of other you know, relevant literature and using, of course, their own clinical reasoning. Um, another section um, suggestion would be to uh, read the CAP and read the journal article 
And you could do this kind of as a standalone exercise or as part of a journal club. Um, it could also be kind of incorporated as like a professional development activity or, or even as, you know, a CEU, if, if, uh, if that fits into what the listeners are developing, a CEU around reading a cap, reading a journal article, you know, making recommendations for practice in light of other evidence that might make sense too. I, I just think there's a lot of places, um, that a person could go with this. Um, I think another thing they could do is like develop patient education materials or client education materials. So. Uh, those, those are wonderful ideas. Uh, I love how, um, Oh, what's the right word here? I can't, it, it left my mind. I'm sorry, Molly. How, uh, how useful caps are. Um, <laughs> I totally just had a brain fart. My apologies. Um, trying to think how they can apply to to so many different things. Um, we're getting now to the end of our, our interview. I only have a couple more questions. Uh, Molly, could you share an example or a personal story of how evidence has impacted you and led to a positive outcome for yourself, a client, a student, or a loved one? Sure. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um yeah, I'll share a personal story about how OT research evidence um, has affected uh, my life. Um, you know, because everybody kind of stereotypes research as being like so dry and boring. But I have a really good example of how research evidence is actually, you know, really useful and practical, even if it's a little bit different than like the one-on-one -on -one client care that we're kind of used to. So last summer, summer of 2020, my partner sustained a mild frontal lobe TBI, and this is his third brain injury total and the second in the same place. And um, he was loading up a bicycle, my son's bicycle into the back of the car and like hit his forehead on the back of the car. And so even though this is, you know, just, quote unquote, just a bump on the head, even though it's a mild TBI, it really affected him profoundly. And for, you know, weeks he was having trouble, maybe months, I can't quite remember right now, but it was things like, you know, requiring darkroom rest. He couldn't work. He couldn't move his head below midline. And so OTs will know how important that is for things like, you know, putting your shoes on and, you know, other various activities. Um, he had to stay in a recliner for weeks and had to wear an eye mask over his eyes. And then he started having migraines and light sensitivity, vision problems, like couldn't look at a screen, like a phone or a computer. And he does computer work exclusively, um, for his job. And so obviously, you know, that means time off work. And we were wondering if it was going to be permanent. Uh, he was in a great deal of pain and then he was diagnosed with, uh, chronic post-concussive headaches. So it's just like this saga of um, difficulty in the wake of seemingly a minor injury. And, and it was like a really stressful situation for the family. Uh, like, you know, the whole family, it wasn't just him. It was like the whole family, me and my partner and our child. Um, and meanwhile, my partner's primary care doc kept doing this sort of watchful waiting approach. And, and I was thinking and saying, and probably saying too much, how much I think he needs OT, you know, like, oh, OTs can help with 
TBIs, even MTBIs, you know? Um, and in fact, I badgered him so much that uh, he, I like made him get a second opinion to see if he could get into a concussion clinic here in town. And he did. He like went to this other provider and I think might have asked directly, like, can I have a referral to OT? And then eventually got one. So um, at the time, I had just finished teaching a research proposal development class. And one student group was working on um, a proposal about what are the barriers to referring clients with MTBIs to OTs. So in other words, like why don't referring providers always refer MTBI patients for OT? And um, so, like I said, it was the end of the summer term when this happened. So I went back and I reread this entire proposal and, you know, read the background section, the supporting materials, and I read all the references and I looked at the citing literature in those papers. And, uh, you know, concurrently he was getting, he had gone to this headache clinic or, or brain injury clinic or something, and he had gotten OT, PT, SLP, neurology, neurooptometry, and I'm probably forgetting some others, but uh, it was like pretty much like comprehensive care, I think. And at the time, I, I was just so frustrated because there was a delay in getting the appointments and then we had to get a second, you know, opinion. And then there was a delay getting into the clinic. And, and I wondered, is there a delay? I mean, is there, is the delay going to cause worse long-term outcomes. I was like really starting to get frazzled and scared. And I'm sure listeners can relate to, you know, seeing the loved ones of clients in great stress, you know, worried about their loved ones. And so um, some of the literature that I read, it like noted these barriers to referrals. And and I do think this is still a problem overall. I think, you know, <laughs> OT could probably advocate for like better referrals for MTBI patients, but you know, seeing this literature um, kind of gave me a degree of solace. Um, and in particular, a study that found that patients who had MTBIs who either initiated OT care early versus OT care later, um, I can't remember how that was defined, but they had similar long-term outcomes. And so that actually was, you know, heartening for me as a loved one, knowing that, okay, in this study, um, the long-term outcomes were similar, no matter if a person initiated OT care earlier versus later. And, you know, a methodological problem with the study was that there was this high dropout rate. So it left lingering questions about, okay, well, what happened to the, I don't know, 40 or 45% of people who got early OT care did they drop out because they were doing better or did they drop out because they were doing worse and they just like couldn't sustain participation in the study? And what about the, you know, 45 or 50% of the MTBI patients who had later OT care, did they drop out because things were so good that they didn't want to participate or so bad that they couldn't? Um, and were they different? Were the reasons for discontinuation the same or were they different across groups? And so obviously that's not a, an ans not a question I can answer. And, you know, just like as a reader, it's not something that 
I could assess. And it's not something that the investigators could assess because they were lost over time, lost to follow up. So it's a problem, obviously, of missing data. But nevertheless, the study's non-findings, meaning there was no difference between the two groups, was heartening for me as a loved one of somebody who had a TBI. And, uh, you know, basically, I think the the thing that was notable for me was that this information hit me really hard when I read this as a loved one. And it just landed so differently when I read this with my, you know, academician hat, when I was reading it as somebody who is, you know, curious and I love research and I love research methods and I love statistics. And I'm curious about this particular like systematic approach to inquiry that's a different that's a different kind of approach to thinking about evidence than what's going to happen to my partner who I love. <laughs> and so I guess that's probably something that OTs can relate to is like when you read this research evidence you know it it seems different than when you're giving direct care to people who you can't help but care about. Um but this research evidence, if if a clinician can translate, like, here's what we know based on the best available evidence, it can be really heartening for, um, you know, the loved ones of your clients, or at least <laughs> in this study of N equals one, <laughs> it was heartening for me. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that, that lived experience. Um, it, it sounds like it was such a stressful and intense, tough situation um, to be in, uh, but really is amazing how evidence was able to have such a great impact on you as a loved one in, in this situation. Um, and I think that that example really illustrates the importance of evidence-based practice uh, and, and as clinicians striving to, to look into the evidence and, and be aware of the evidence and know how to understand it correctly so we can help the people we work with and their loved ones as much as possible. Um, and if, if you don't mind me asking a follow-up, how is uh, your partner doing now? Oh yeah. Great question. I just like <laughs> told this long story and forgot to mention the outcome. Um, he's doing great. So it was a very, very long road to recovery and um, included things like, you know, vision therapy and, and I mean, all kinds of stuff, but um, we had great care. Um, I mean, I say we, I should say he had great care. I guess I was just, you know, like the supportive role, but um, yeah, he's doing great. He's working full time again. It was kind of a phased return to work. And I mean, it just, it showed me so much about why OT is important. And and even like as a person with a disability and and I have an invisible disability. It just was different when I observed this as a loved one for a person who was otherwise, you know, kind of typical and didn't have health problems. And then all of a sudden he had an injury and then it was like a very slow road to recovery. And I'm sure that this kind of emotional story is probably why people choose OT as a career. Like they think that that recovery is possible and they want to be part of that. And, and that was something, you know, as, as a researcher, I mean, that just wasn't my story as far as like how I came to love research. Like it wasn't necessarily about personal 
difficulty and subsequent triumph over a problem. It was more like, you know, what's going on in the world that we have these disparities in health outcomes and in social determinants of health. So it's a different orientation, I think, to the world. But anyways, long answer to a short question. He's better. (laughs) (laughs) A wonderful answer, nonetheless. Thank you for sharing uh, your experience and and those sentiments as well. Um, Where can listeners find more information related to CAPS if they want to dive into them further? So, yeah, great question. I mean, AOTA's EBP website has the most current CAP uh, worksheet, and um, my OT practice paper might be useful. It's like in press. It'll be out soon. Um, And there's also the chapter from Leslie Portney's book, Foundations of Clinical Research Application to EBP, which is about design validity. And then AOTA has a resource about study design. So those are about CAPS and about study design and about, you know, assessing research. So I think if a, if a listener wanted more information so that they could do a cap, those would all be really helpful resources. Awesome. We want all the resources. Thank you so much, Molly, for sharing those. Um, we're to our final question. This is our golden nugget segment is what we like to call it here. Molly, if you could share one piece of knowledge or one clinical recommendation with our listeners, what would you say? So one piece of knowledge or one recommendation. Um, I love that you call this your golden nugget question. Um, So this is a little bit of a departure from the uh, EBP story that we've been talking about. But I would just say one recommendation would be for a clinician to challenge, you know, to, to seek out and then to challenge their own ableism. And I can say, I really think that all of us, you know, growing up in a culture that kind of marginalizes people with disabilities, we all have this ableism that we carry around with us that it's sort of like the background music of our lives. And given that OTs are charged with, you know, helping people who have had an illness or who have a disability, Um, or who have sustained an injury and they're recovering, you know, it's so important to seek out where in ourselves do we harbor negative beliefs or stereotypes about people with disabilities, or in what ways is our work paternalistic? And I think that willingness to recognize that in ourselves will vastly improve our care for clients with disabilities, you know, because people with disabilities can feel it. It's like you can feel it in the air when somebody has a negative regard for you as a person with a disability. So that's my one, you know, golden nugget recommendation is to look for and challenge our own ableism. Thank you. I think that's a wonderful golden nugget, a wonderful sentiment. And you're so right. We all do have our our own um, perspectives, our own uh, kind of ways of looking at the world and it can be so valuable to take a moment and reflect intrinsically on on how we can change and improve um, those things. So thank you so much, Molly. This has been a wonderful interview. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you again for being on the show today. Thank you, Matt, for having me. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. 
See you next time as we bring occupational therapy research and application straight to you.